0: This is different. You guys never get quiet before I uh, come up here, (laughs) usually. Are we good? Well, why don't we... Since you guys are anticipating the video, why don't we show that first? Oh, I stole his password online, and hello, makeover. <laughs> i got hair extensions, plumped at the lips, and snapped the hottest headshots. Hollywood, here I come. Tell me what you think. <laughs> Unbreak my heart, say you love me again. Undo this hurt that you caused when you walked out the door and you walked out of my life. City Identity Theft Solutions. Talk to a real person to help get your life back. Free when you get a city credit card or City bank account. So, I'm actually not a Citibank salesperson, but this, that commercial is supposed to warn us about identity theft and how they protect against identity theft, and that's why that, you know, hairy-chested, burly man lifting weights, speaking in the voice of a California Valley girl, because his identity was stolen by a California Valley girl who went on a shopping spree with his credit card, basically credit card information. Basically, you know what identity theft is, it happens when someone steals your identity and personal information and uses it to fraudulent ends to, for example, go on a shopping spree with someone else's money. And obviously, it's wrong to do that, and it's not hard for us to tell that identity theft is not a good thing. You're not supposed to pose as someone that you're not and abuse someone else's identity to the detriment of that person. But what's interesting is that for us as Christians, we by definition have someone else's identity. We wear someone else's identity. We were not born into the identity of Christ. We were not, we did not earn the identity of Christ by doing well in our life, but we have been given the identity of Christ freely. Even though we, in our sinfulness, as humans, we are despicable before God. We are destitute before God. Christ, the perfect and blameless son of God, gave us his identity so that we can stand before God pure and blameless. So that's Way better than identity theft. It's an identity gift from Christ. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. The identity gift of Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to have a Christian identity? And the best place to look at that is to look at the life of Jesus. Because our identity comes from the identity of Christ. By looking at and examining the life of Jesus, we can see how we ought to live. What our identity is supposed to be. So if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. And if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and uh, our ushers in the back can get a Bible for you. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. I'll read it out loud for us. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you and we praise you that you have called us to be co-heirs with you. Because of your work, the Son of God, we can be adopted sons and daughters of God. God, we want to learn about what it means to be your follower, what it means to have a Christian identity. So teach us this morning from your word. Teach us this morning from the example of your life. How we can overcome the temptations of this world. To live into the identity gift that you have given us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 So if you want to follow along with me in verse 1 there, um, it's kind of curious what's going on in in this part of the passage where he says then jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil He says he was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil this construction implies purpose this is the whole reason why jesus had to be taken to the desert he went to be tempted by the devil that's why he went that makes no sense to me if you ask me why would you go into the desert to be tempted by the devil Why don't you run away from the desert so that you don't have to be tempted by the devil? Why are you going in to be tempted? And why is the spirit of all people leading him to go be tempted by the devil? Makes no sense, right? So let's let's examine it together. The reason why this is kind of hard to understand is because the word to tempt here has two senses. It can mean first to tempt someone to make them fail so that you can disapprove them. That's one meaning, but it could also mean to test someone to show their true worth and approve them. So it has two senses. So what's going on here is is both of those things are happening in this one, one verse because Satan is here leading him. Satan is trying to tempt him to make him fall so that he can discredit him while God, while the Holy Spirit is leading him to be tested so that his true worth can be proven. And... And that's why the Spirit initiates this whole thing. Like you see throughout the passage, it seems like Satan's calling all the shots, right? He's saying, oh, I'm going to show you this, take you to this mountain, show you all the glories of the kingdom. I'm going to take you to the temple. I'm going to ask you to jump from it. He's the one that's commanding him. He's the one that's telling him what to do. But if you look at the beginning, it's not Satan who's in charge because the Spirit leads him into the desert. And that's helpful for us to remember in our trials and temptations it seems going to seem like Satan is calling all the shots. It's going to seem like he's asking you all the questions and giving you all the trials. But know that the Holy Spirit, God, is sovereign over it all. He's in control over it all, no matter what's happening in your life. So the Spirit initiates uh, this. And what's really interesting now, if you move into second verse and third verse here, it says, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, I want to dwell on that phrase for a little bit. If you are the Son of God. Now, what is he trying to do here? If you are the Son of God. Why is he mentioning the fact that Jesus is the Son of God? And that's because in the passage just before this, if you look at Matthew chapter 3, the end of it, verses 16 and 17, it says this. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then immediately in the next verse, the Holy Spirit that just descended on him leads him to the desert, and then Satan, then Satan comes to him and asks him, If you really are the Son of God. You see what's going on here, the connection between the two? Because now God had declared, the Almighty Father has come to, to declare, Jesus, he is my son of God. He is he's the son. He is my son, beloved son. And then Satan comes in and says, oh, if you really are the son of God, turn the stone into bread. The issue at hand, the fundamental level right here, what's going on is Jesus' identity. What Satan is concerned about here is Jesus' identity as the son of God. But is Satan doubting, you know, Jesus as the Son of God? Is is he trying to make him question whether or not he's really the Son of God? That's not what's going on here because uh, the the condition here, if, is actually a condition of reality. That means it assumes the truth of the fact that that Jesus is actually the Son of God. So it's actually better translated as, since you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So what is going on then is Satan's not trying to get to do some reverse psychology or trying to do a dare game. Oh, I dare you. I bet you can't turn this stone into bread. That's not what he's doing. He knows Jesus is the Son of God. What he's trying to do is, though, he's trying to get him to abuse his identity as the Son of God, to, to take for himself the prerogatives of the Son of God and act outside of the will of the Father instead of submitting to the will of the Father as his son, abusing his sonship and using the Father. That's what, that's what Satan is trying to get him to do. So let's now dive into the temptations. But before I dive into the actual temptations, I want to give you an overview so that you're tracking with me. And there's an insert in your bulletin that kind of outlines where I'm going to go. So the first temptation, I call it, it's the temptation of appetite in a culture of consumerism. And the second temptation is a temptation of affirmation in a culture of celebrity. And the third temptation is a temptation of ambition in a culture of competition. Now, I have to give credit where this is due. These wonderfully alliterative alliterative categories are from a guy named Mike Green, who leads a discipling movement called 3DM in uh, South Carolina. But these ideas are in the text, and these comments have been made by Christians for 2,000 years. They have been noting these categories in in these words. And... What I'm going to try to do is keep one foot in exegeting the text, show you what these temptations are, and then keep the other foot in exegeting our culture to show you what these temptations look like in our current culture, in our modern culture, and then to see how we can navigate the two, how we can overcome these temptations in our world today. So let's look at the first temptation, verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, Jesus was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now when I was studying this passage, I hadn't actually studied it in depth until I was preparing for this sermon. I mean, I've read this passage countless times, but it kind of confused me. So what exactly is wrong with turning the stone into bread? (laughs) Right? I mean... Jesus later is going to multiply just a few loaves of bread to feed thousands of people. Why can't he do it now? I mean, he even says he's hungry. Why can't he just turn the stone into bread and feed himself? He's hungry. What's wrong with that? Right? I mean, it's what's wrong with turning a stone into bread. The key is in Jesus' response. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Old Testament here. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. Can We might have it on the screen. There you go. He humbled you, this is Moses talking to the Israelites, and let you hunger and fed, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what is going on here? What is this temptation about, this temptation of appetite? This is a temptation of appetite because he's saying, yes, you are hungry, and yes, you want bread right now, but at this point in time, for one reason or another, it is the Father's will that you fast. It is the Father's will that you hunger. It is Father's will that you lack and that you want at this point in time. So even though bread sounds good, even though he can make bread for himself, to do that will be to act outside of God's will. And this is what God did to the Israelites when they were going in the desert. He let them hunger to humble them, he says in Deuteronomy 8.3, so that they know what it's like to not get whatever they want whenever they want, so that they know what it's like to be dependent on God. And it's interesting if you look at that story, because when God rains down manna, right, he doesn't give them enough Provision to last them the whole journey. He gives them just enough for one day. One day so that they can never be sure whether or not they're going to have food on the table the next day. And why does God do this? So that they are dependent on him. So that they are trusting in him. So that they are waiting for his provision daily. And that's what God does to us. Sometimes he lets you have want in your life. Sometimes he lets you have lack in your life. To wait to patiently. Just so that he can humble you and teach you to be dependent on him, to know that foundationally, what's more foundational than our any need is our need for God Himself. It's for the Word that comes from God Himself, because our food is not just—it's our food is not just what sustains us physically, but it also, it's also doing the will of God. That's why in John 4:34, what does Jesus say? My food is to do the will of Him who sent me, and to finish His work. Our life is not about satisfying our appetites. It's about obeying God and following him and trusting in him. And it says in Matthew 6, 25, 34, what does that say? Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. For the pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly father knows you need them. If you seek first his kingdom, the God will give to you all these things as well. But we have to confess, don't we? We think much more often about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear, than about doing the will of God. We think more about ourselves than about the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching us here that, yes, you do need the bread for life, but life is not for bread. You need the bread for life, but you also need the bread of life. You need Jesus Christ. You need to do his will. You need to be in the right relationship with God. That's more important, more fundamental than anything else. And this spiritual uh, hunger is, is something that we need to satisfy, not just our physical appetites. And what's worse is that this appetite that we have is exacerbated. It's made worse and made more hard to quench by our culture of consumerism. Everywhere you go, even if you just take a walk out in the city or if you turn on the TV or surf on the internet or just tune into the radio, you hear one more thing that you supposedly need. They want you to buy stuff. They spend millions of dollars in advertisement because they want to sell you stuff to tell you, to sell you to you the idea. And they're selling an idea. Trust me, they're not just selling a product. Modern, shop, modern day consumption is not about shopping. It's about selling an identity. It's about purchasing meaning. That's why they say you, it's, it's, That's why we're so wrapped up in what kind of phone we have, what kind of car we drive, what kind of wine we drink, what kind of house we have, what kind of clothes we wear, and how we talk and how we look. It's all wrapped up in our identity, and that's why we spend so, many money, so much money on things that we buy. It's all wrapped up in our identity. That's what they're trying to sell. But the, Jesus' response, however, is the same in present culture. Don't stone, turn the stone into bread. Don't try to take for yourself without trusting in God. We are not meant to be consumers only. We are meant to be producers. We're meant to be multiplying the gospel. We're meant to be following God, obeying him. We don't live by bread alone. We don't live for our appetites. We live for Christ. We live to obey him. So we, our Christian identity then, from this temptation we can tell, is not defined by the things that we own. Our Christian identity is not defined by the things that we own. It's not defined by our appetite. Then let's look at the second temptation. This is a popular one. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Now, just the fact that Satan quotes scripture should be enough to prove to us that just just the fact that you have a piece of scripture to back up what you think is right doesn't mean that it's actually right. Because it's possible to misappropriate and misuse scripture. You need to do it with accountability from the larger church body, and we need to do it through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and we need to properly interpret Scripture. You can't just take a piece. Sorry, but I digress. That's not the point of the, the, this temptation, though. The temptation is um, about affirmation, and how is that so? Here, Satan's quoting Psalm 91, 11 to 12. He's misusing it. We can tell that it's a temptation of affirmation because Jesus quotes back from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, Sixteen. Let me read that for you. Again, it is written, "You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa." This verse is uh, referring to Israelites' temptation. They were they doubted God's provision of water at Massa. They tested him. Massa means to test, testing. And it, it explains uh, this story is explained in Exodus seventeen seven. It says, "He called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel." And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? That's the heart of this temptation. Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord with us or not? Does the Lord care for us or not? Does the Lord love us or not? That's the question. That's what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do. Does the Lord really care for you or not? Does he love you or not? Throw yourself down. Let's see if he saves you. Let's see if he prevents you from harming yourself. That's the second temptation. It's the temptation of affirmation he's trying to get jesus to force god the father's hand by creating this self-induced danger to see if god he can make god the father act and in doing that he reverses the way it's supposed to be jesus came to serve not to be served he came to bring glory to the father but he's trying to make jesus make make god the father serve jesus and make him seek his own glory rather than the glory of god it's selfish affirmation and this, again, is worsened by our culture because we live in a culture of celebrity. You guys know what I'm talking about? We live in a world of self-made, self-promoted celebrities. We no longer have heroes in our culture. We no longer have enduring heroes that are praised or in acclaimed for their courageous virtue. We have instead celebrities that are self-promoting their image. We don't have true heroes they're praised for their courage. We have celebrities, and it's in this culture, it's easy to confuse our significance with fame. It's easy to confuse our Facebook friends with true relationships. It's easy to confuse our Twitter followers with true disciples, because it's a culture of celebrity and not of heroes. And this makes us all seek our own affirmation. Make yourself feel affirmed by God question God's affirmation test him and you know how you can tell whether or not you can uh, whether or not you're testing God's affirmation or trusting in God's affirmation is when trial comes people that are trusting in God's affirmation can stand firm and know that God still cares for them because they trust in God's affirmation but people that seek selfish affirmation that seeking God's affirmation to make themselves feel better about themselves they get all worked up and shaken whenever trials come because they don't trust in God's affirmation. They're seeking it for themselves. And a lot of times we say, oh, God's, we emphasize God's love. We say, God loves me. But sometimes we use that selfishly. It's, it's, it's just a, it's a Christianized version of making ourselves feel better about ourselves. But that's not what the gospel is about. God's love is not about just making us more, you know, please, more pleasing to ourselves, but it's to make us more pleasing to God and to make us more holy. The gospel is about commitment, it's about obedience. So we so we this is a temptation of affirmation. But we need to trust in God. We need to know that God has affirmed us and trust in Him instead of testing His affirmation, instead of seeking selfish affirmation to make us feel better about ourselves. And now we finally come to the, the final temptation, the third temptation. says in verse 8 again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he said to him all these i will give you if you will fall down and worship me now satan is dropping all his disguise right here he's not trying to get jesus to abuse his identity anymore he's saying straight up forfeit your identity stop being the son of god come worship me and i'll give you all the glories of these kingdoms it's what Satan's doing in this, in this part of the temptation. And some people ask whether Satan's bluffing. I mean, is he bluffing? Does he really have the power to give him these temptations? I think, I think he actually does because in many times in the New Testament, for example, in you know, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 or John 12.31, Satan's referred to as the ruler of this world. And it says in Matthew 12.26 that he has his own kingship. He has his own kingdom. So I think he, Satan actually does have the power to do this But what's this temptation about? We again have to go to Jesus' response to figure out what's really going on here. And Jesus quotes here from Deuteronomy 6, 13 to 14. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. Now this passage recalls the the idolatry of the Israelites with the golden calf in Exodus 32. Now, this was this this is temptation is about ambition, and the reason why is because the Israelites, the Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God, and in his absence, they're feeling a little insecure. They're like, "Oh, we need to go conquer these kingdoms, but we don't have God to sponsor us. We don't need God to empower us. He's not here because he was with Moses." But for them, it's not really about the glory of God. Their conquest is not about the glory of God. But it's about their selfish ambition, about their national glory. So they quickly replace God and set up an idol for themselves. Say, this is God. Worship this God. And that's what's going on. Selfish ambition leads to idolatry. Selfish ambition leads to idolatry. And that's what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do here. He's trying to get him to shortcut his path to glory. Don't wait for the cross. Don't suffer and die and resurrect. I can give you the glories of the kingdom right here. Follow your ambition, selfish ambition. That's what he's saying. And this, of course, is again made worse by a culture of competition. Our culture is so competitive and individualistic. We'll do, people will do anything they can to make them advance themselves at the loss of other people. It's about self-promotion. It's about f- fulfilling their personal selfish ambitions. But we have a God that's different. In Philippians 2, what did it say? Jesus Christ, being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But humbled himself, taking the very nature of a servant. And what did he teach us, his disciples? He who wants to be the greatest needs to be the servant of all. That's, we live in a backward economy. We live in a gospel economy where he who wants to be the greatest needs to be the servant of all. We can't have selfish ambition. We need to have godly ambition. We need to have gospel ambition to to spread the gospel, to bring glory to God and not to yourself. That's the culture of competition that makes our appetite, affirmation, ambition all worse. So what are we supposed to do in this? Can we really overcome these temptations as Jesus did? I mean, Jesus is Jesus. He's the Son of God. In fact, I have to confess, if, and it's, it's true, that for all of us, probably even our best works, even the things that are most pure and the things that we do are still tainted with our sinfulness, with these temptations of selfish affirmation, and ambition, and appetite. For me, when I post things online, sometimes I'm tempted to try to make followers for myself, not followers for Christ. When I post things on my blog, sometimes I'm tempted to increase my domain of influence through, the influence, through increasing the influence for God's kingdom. Even when I'm preparing the sermon, Satan comes and tempts me. He says, oh, write a great sermon and give a great sermon. Then people will adore you. They will think that you're great. And I smack myself in the bed. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about yourself. This life is not about you. Our Christian identity is not about advancing ourselves. It's not about fulfilling our own appetites or our own affirmation or ambition. It's about fulfilling Christ. And we can't do this, guys. It's impossible to overcome these temptations unless we have a better appetite, unless we have a better affirmation, unless we have a better ambition, and these all come from Christ. Did you guys notice in the beginning why why Jesus had to go to the desert? Why does he go to the desert to be tempted? Why doesn't he go to the city? That's where all the evil things are, right? (laughs) Why does he go to the desert? Nothing's there. Why does he go to the desert to be tempted? Because Israelites were tempted in the desert, and they failed in the desert. Why does Jesus fast for 40 days? Why doesn't he just do it for a week? Why doesn't he do it for two months? Why does he do it only for 40 days? Because the Israelites were in the desert and were tested for 40 years. You see what's going on here? Jesus is fulfilling what Israel failed for themselves. Jesus is the true Israel. He's fulfilling what we could never accomplish for ourselves. We can never overcome the temptations of appetite, affirmation, ambition on our own. But Christ has done it for us. He died for us and fulfilled our greatest need, our greatest appetite, which is to be forgiven of our sins and be reconciled to our God. That's our greatest need, our greatest appetite, and God has fulfilled it so that in our daily life, in our Mondays, in our work, when we are not satisfied, our appetites are lacking, and we're longing for something else, we can still be content because our greatest need has already been met by Christ. In the same way, we don't have to seek affirmation all the time. People, that's, people that seek selfish affirmation from God, it's not surprising, also seek selfish affirmation from other people generally they are afraid of people about what they're going to perceive of them what they're going to say about them but because christ has expressed for us in the most irrevocable most final and certain terms he has expressed his affirmation of us by dying for us for loving us enough to die for our sins and because of that we don't have to question god's affirmation we don't have to test God's affirmation. Even when you feel like you're being abandoned, even by God himself, we don't have to test his affirmation because we know we can look back to Christ and know that he affirmed us in a radically real and unrevocable way, irrevocable way. So we have Christ as our affirmation. Same thing with ambition. Some, a lot of us, most of us, that we, most of the people that we know are not going to directly worship Satan. But that's not the only temptation that we have a lot of people will indirectly worship satan by compromising with the ways of this world in order to gain success they will compromise their values to advance in the world and as they do that their allegiance is passed along from god to satan as they pursue their selfish ambition but we don't need to do that because we have a better ambition because god himself is our ambition We have the ambition to spread the kingdom of God rather than our own petty kingdoms. We have the ambition to advance God's glory rather than our own small glory. Because of that, we don't have to ever succumb to our temptation of ambition. Because Christ is our appetite. Because Christ is our affirmation. Because Christ is our ambition. We live daily and we breathe and we fight and we die to protect this and to proclaim this because Christ is our only identity. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's to have Christ as your identity, nothing else. No affirmation, appetite, or ambition. Just Christ as our our identity. And of course, when you do this, we see at the end in verse 11, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Isn't this what Satan tempted Jesus about in the second temptation? Throw yourself down from the temple and angels will come and protect you and and attend to you. This happens anyway when Jesus obeys. It happens when you obey, not when you disobey. In the same way, didn't Satan promise Jesus the glory of all the kingdoms? I'll give you all the glories of this earth if you worship me, if you bow down to me. But do you remember what happened after Jesus' resurrection in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not just earthly glory, earthly kingdoms. Glory in heaven and on earth have been given to me. All of it because Jesus obeyed. Obedience. Christian identity lies in submission to God's will, not about forcing his will to do what we want to do, to pursue our own appetite or affirmation or ambition. So, dear brothers and sisters, remember, when you are faced with these temptations, you are a Christian. We are Christians. Our identity is Christ, nothing else. And let it be known to everybody that you meet at your work, that you meet at your school, that you meet at your home. Everywhere you go, let it be known to them that from this day and forevermore that we are Christians and we find our identity in God, in Christ, in nothing else. The band can come up as we close. Let me pray for us at this time. Dear God, we seek your glory. God, won't you satisfy us so richly? Won't you overwhelm us with your love so deeply? Won't you penetrate our hearts so that these selfish appetites and selfish affirmations and selfish ambitions seem trivial and petty before the glorious ambition and the unchanging affirmation and the fully satisfying appetite of Christ become richer for us, for more real for us. God, there is nothing more glorious than living for you. There's nothing more satisfying than pursuing you. Lord, nothing in this world compares to you. No beauty of this world can contain you. And it is our privilege and honor to follow you, Lord. So help us to live lives that are worthy of your calling. Help us to live lives that are worthy of the name of Christian. In Jesus' name we pray.